Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. I guess to start, most importantly, uh, STP Tour, was it fun? Oh, man. <laughs> I've been trying to recreate that fun the rest of my life and not even come close. Yeah, it was more fun than anybody should ever have. It was like you were part of a conquering army and you were sweeping across America. You were invulnerable. You had security guys. You were inside the bubble. You never saw the outside world unless you wanted to. All you had to do was bring your bag down to the lobby in the morning. And you were riding in the black limos, and then you were in the next city. And you knew history was being made. We were front page news in every city. It permeated everything. Everybody in the country was aware that there was a Rolling Stones tour. I don't think you could say that about any other rock group that toured. Everybody in the country was aware of it. You know, it was on Johnny Carson, it was on Dick Cavett, it was on every source of media. You couldn't be awake at the end of 1972 and not known that the Rolling Stones had toured America. I'm not saying it was the greatest rock and roll tour of all time, why would I say that? But it certainly hasn't been anything like it since. My name's Jordan Runtog. Welcome to the Stones Touring Party. Hollywood, 1972, mid-May. Kids and wannabes cruise sunset with their car tops down, spilling the sounds of rock and roll onto the crowded boulevard. Exile on Main Street, the double-disc epic by the Rolling Stones, is new to the airwaves and being beamed out constantly hovering over sunny LA like a dark cloud of decadence and depravity. 
If any of these kids knew what was going down in the anonymous instrument rental shop they just sped past, they'd probably have a hat on. But like all the best things in life, few knew. You had to know the right people. They won't tell you at the front desk. If you asked whether a certain band of renegade English superstars were in their midst, rehearsing for the biggest tour in rock history at that very moment, you'd be met with a blank stare. Don't believe them. Head to the back, down the hall, take a right. A stunningly beautiful blonde with eyes like blue jade stands guard. Don't worry, she's a friend. Stick with us. A sign on the rehearsal room door reads, Extraterrestrial Funk, but you know this band by another name. On vocals, Mr. Mick Jagger, who always seems smaller and quieter at first meeting than he really is. On lead and rhythm guitars, Mr. Keith Richards, a person you would look at twice in any crowd, once described by a lady who seemed quite taken with him as, quote, absolutely the most physically foreboding person I have ever seen. Keith has added a golden rooster track of frosting to one side of his thatched artichoke cut hair, and around his neck he wears a turquoise necklace. On lead and rhythm guitars, Mr. Mick Taylor, the youngest in the band, still nearly a kid, a beautiful soloist and pure blues musician. On drums, twirling the sticks in his hands forever, Mr. Charlie Watts, with a pile of empty beer cans growing around his feet. On bass, Mr. Bill Wyman, who's the oldest person in the band, if not rock and roll, and along with Watts, possessor of one of the great Buster Keaton stone faces. Ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. That description comes courtesy of Robert Greenfield, the legendary rock journalist who was Rolling Stone magazine's anointed Stones correspondent in the early 70s. As a 20-something, he accompanied the band on the road for several tours and even lived with Keith Richards for several weeks in southern France while the Stones recorded Exile on Main Street. But nothing will top their historic trek across the U.S. in the summer of 72, bringing Exile tracks to the masses as the country threatened to come apart at the seams. The experience formed the basis of Greenfield's hugely influential first book, 1973's STP, A Journey Through America with the Rolling Stones. What's STP, you ask? Well, here's Robert Greenfield to clue you in. Something I think is semi-interesting about the tour, it was the first time, to my knowledge, that laminates were ever used. Never before. A laminate is a badge that you wear everywhere because without your laminate, you're a non-person. And so on the laminate, below your face, and they took everybody's photo, it said S.T.P, S-T-P, which stood for Stone's Touring Party, which is so English. Like, oh man, so proper, you know? The first full-length account of a rock and roll tour the STP book was the result of Bob's unparalleled access through weeks on the road and more than 60 hours of interviews with the band and their entourage. My intention in the book was to write about America in the summer of 1972 as seen from the vantage point of someone who was on the tour with Rolling Stones. And it was very much about them, but I kept trying to make it also about where they were, what we were doing. I uh, wasn't particularly trying to write a book about drugs and sex and rock and roll. That, you know, that concept came about a long time later. Uh, it was a lifestyle, but the Stones were already separate from even that. They were doing what they were doing on a level that no one else was doing it in terms of drugs and sex and rock and roll. Now, for the very first time, Bob's sharing his tape archive, allowing us to sit in on intimate chats with the Rolling Stones in their prime. These interviews have been unheard for half a century. 
Courtesy of Robert Greenfield's archive at the Northwestern University Libraries, you'll be deep in conversation with the likes of Keith Richards. I mean, when you're on the road, you feel yourself in a special sort of state somewhere. You know, you're, you're not connected to the real world at all. And so everything has a different kind of value and a different meaning. You know. And Mick Jagger. I mean, there, there was a few places that it did get scary. And there was a lot of guns confiscated and stuff like that. Bob will be joined throughout this series by his good friend and fellow STP tour vet, Gary Stromberg, a rock PR supremo who's represented a whole jukebox worth of the 20th century's greatest artists. In the early 70s, I was running... I don't want to sound boastful, but I had what was probably the preeminent PR firm in the music business. And we were representing pretty much the who's who of rock and roll at that time. Almost everybody from England that was of note other than the Beatles from Pink Floyd on down. His charming humility has prevented him from mentioning Ray Charles, Elton John, The Doors, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Three Dog Night. With that kind of track record, it was only a matter of time before he got a call about a new proposition. Would you be interested in representing the Stones? <laughs> now, yes, I was cocky, let's just say that. I was cocky. And, you know, I didn't want to sa- sound like it was too easy, <laughs> playing hard to get a little bit. And I said, yeah, well, I'll think about that. Shocker, Gary took the gig, thus earning him a spot on the STP tour where he met Robert Greenfield. Gary and I still have this relationship 50 years later and have known each other throughout our adult lives. It speaks to the fact that it wasn't drudgery. It wasn't a gig. It certainly was peak experience. It was an experience that very few other people have ever had. And so if you shared it and you came out of it alive and sane... I was just going to say that surviving it was a... In and of itself was a, I mean, I handle a lot of people that aren't here today that, that, you know, that are, the roadside is littered with people that didn't make it uh, from my experience in in the rock and roll world. It's a time that's not going to come again. I mean, everything we're talking about is a combination of the time and the people and the context. It's not understandable. You could read about something that happened. You could see a movie about something that happened a ways ago. But unless people who were living through that are talking to you about it, they're the only ones who can recreate what it was like to be alive at a certain point in time. We're back to the oral tradition. You have to hear this from people who were there, who experienced it, and it's been proven to me here uh, for Gary and I, who now look at it and understand it in a completely different way. Yeah, we have perspective. Yes, which is God's grace. Let me say thank you. Consider this show your very own STP laminate, an all-access pass that takes you from the front row to backstage and from the private jets to the private after-show affairs. We're going on the road with the greatest rock and roll band in the world on the tour that showed us what it means to party like a rock star. Each episode will stop in a different city, taking in the sights, sounds, riots, bombings, drug busts, and other assorted mayhem from this pivotal moment in American history. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. The Rolling Stones were the last band standing at the dawn of the 70s, or at least that's how it seemed. As Robert Greenfield observes in STP, they were the only great group of the 60s still around in original form, playing original rock and roll. The 1972 tour was their first trip to the States since their friendly rivals the Beatles had dissolved, and their absence had re-established the rock and roll pecking order. Simply put, with the Beatles gone, everybody moved up one. After 10 years of playing together, the Stones had become the number one attraction in the world and released a string of their best-loved albums, culminating in exile on Main Street that spring. As Robert writes, they were royalty, undeniably, by acclamation, and to America they came to receive their crown. 72 is the end of the first act of their career. It's the highlight reel of the end of the first act, where they really have made the best three albums back to back to back. This was them at their artistic peak. You know, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile. And they're the kings of America for however many weeks as the tour went. And everybody, they become the world's greatest rock and roll band on the 1972 tour. Drummer Charlie Watts was a little more humble in his assessment of his group's abilities. We've never been a band of musicians, you know, and it's, it's always set out to be, uh, you know, get off your ass and dance, you know. It was so fast. Everything was moving at lightning speed, it felt like. 
we, we know there was no stopping. They did so many gigs. So many gigs. He never caught your breath. He just moved from one to the next. <laughs> there was no time for reflection ever for me. In the blazing heat of summer in America, at a time when there was, you know, fighting in the streets. It wasn't over. No, not, not even by a long shot was it over. The Stones' 1972 tour was a dangerous trek through a country at war with itself. The flames of the 60s revolution still smoldered. This was especially true on college campuses, where students protested the conflict in Vietnam, which dragged into its seventh year with no end in sight. In 1970, National Guardsmen gunned down four students during a peaceful protest at Kent State. To the youth of America, the tragedy summarized the savage lengths the establishment would go to eliminate opposition. Figures of hope and change like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Robert F. Kennedy had all been shot to death under cloudy circumstances. Black Panther activist Fred Hampton was assassinated in his bed by law enforcement, while fellow Panthers Angela Davis and Bobby Seale rotted in prison. This paranoid brutality seemed to extend to the very top of U.S. government. Two weeks before the STP tour kicked off in the summer of 72, Burglars, acting on orders from President Nixon's administration, broke into the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate Hotel, igniting a scandal that would alter American politics forever. Nixon's FBI chief, the notoriously reactionary J. Edgar Hoover, kept thick files on the outspoken members of the left-leaning rock establishment, who held tremendous sway over the enormous block of newly eligible young voters. Figures like John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, and uh, the Monkees were monitored and even harassed but Hoover reserved special scorn for the Stones. According to a former FBI operative, J. Edgar Hoover hated Jagger probably more than any other pop cultural figure of his generation. By embarking on the STP tour, the Rolling Stones were headed for a crossfire hurricane. Counterculture was pretty much out on its feet, okay? Hippie thing was still going on. It was real political. There'd been a lot of political violence. It was a serious time of transition. This tour was fraught with insanity coming from outside. You have a bombing in Montreal. They're setting fire to Boston. The Hells Angels are serving you with legal papers, making you think they're coming after you in more than one way. And they generated this energy. Mad, mad, mad. So... I'm sure it made the concerts better. Don't ask me why. This mad energy came to a head on the Stones' previous American tour in 1969 during their infamous free concert at the Altamont Speedway that December. Conceived as a thank you to their fans, the good intentions were undermined by the decision to hire the Hells Angels as security, where, according to Rock Myth, they were paid for their services with $500 worth of beer. The all-day concert was a logistical nightmare beset by chaos and violence. For the Stones, the mood was set from the moment they exited their helicopter when Mick Jagger got punched in the face by an agitated attendee. As the day wore on, Hell's Angels speed freaks attempted to maintain order by cracking pool cues over the skulls of equally blasted acid casualties. They even knocked out Jefferson Airplane singer Marty Ballin in the middle of the band's performance. We talk about Altamont. <laughs> the ultimate test of Altamont is the Grateful Dead turned around and went home. So if there's a gig that the Grateful Dead are not going to play because it's too chaotic for them, whoa. 
The beatings continued throughout the audience all afternoon, but it turned deadly at nightfall during the stone set. 18-year-old Meredith Hunter pulled a pistol out of his jacket, just feet from the front of the stage. One of the Hell's Angels descended on him with a knife, stabbing him at least six times. The terrified band saw the skirmish, but fearing a riot, finished the concert anyway. It wasn't until later that they learned they just witnessed a murder. The killing was captured on camera by filmmakers Albert and David Mazels. It became the pivotal scene in their groundbreaking 1970 rock documentary, Gimme Shelter. The film ends with Mick Jagger watching the grisly footage in an editing room, his face impassive. For one of the most image-conscious celebrities of his generation, this was a rare misstep and a damaging one. More people saw the documentary than had been at Altamont, obviously. That documentary had an incredible impact at the time because you can hear about violence, but when you see a Hells Angel stab a black man to death and they caught it on film. Altima was instantaneously mythologized as the death of rock and roll's innocence, or at least whatever innocence rock and roll had ever had. The Stones became the subject of scathing op-eds, claiming that the band, and particularly Mick Jagger, then deep into his Lucifer guys, had more or less brought this on themselves. No sympathy for the devil this time around. Rightly or wrongly, the band were held responsible by critics, fans, and even fellow musicians. The Hell's Angels may have committed the crime, they reasoned, but the Stones should have known better than to get mixed up with them in the first place. According to guitarist Mick Taylor, the guilt was something that the entire band shouldered. I think it affected all of us very profoundly. The only thing we were very upset about was being accused and held responsible for, for what happened. And uh, you can't really blame anybody in that kind of mass hysteria. People in America know that the Hells Angels are, are a violent organization. And um, for that reason alone, I don't think they should have been hired, you know, as security guards. Because it automatically gives them an excuse. Rolling Stone magazine published an exhaustive 20,000-word report weeks later, describing the event as the product of diabolical egotism, hype, ineptitude, money, manipulation, and, at base, a fundamental lack of concern for humanity, implicitly and unfairly laying the blame squarely at Mick Jagger's feet. I think it was about fame and money and success. It was about a lot of people don't like the Kardashians. Can't imagine why. But, you know... Jagger has it all, yeah? And we want it. And he made the money off our backs. Interesting, huh? You have class warfare here on some level. Anytime the Stones came to America, they always crystallized what was going on. Came here in 69, there you got it. Revolution, chaos, hippies, Violence. you know, the dark side of Woodstock, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was that undefined anger that, in fact, defines America. Everybody in America is always pissed off about something. Now it's how much gas costs. Okay, it's very expensive, but you can't exactly torch the gas station, you know. The Stones drew this pus out of American society. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. It's like some kind of virus, you know. They just bring everything out. People are galvanized by them to do stuff that normal human beings wouldn't otherwise do, back then at least, you know. In a sense, 
This phenomenon had dogged the Stones since they first arrived on American shores back in 1964. The Beatles, who'd beat them by a few months, were the heroes of the British invasion. So the Stones were forced into the role of anti-heroes. This just goes back to the 1950s. They've come for your daughters. The black nation is taking over our children. Look, the Stones, unlike the Beatles, the Stones were despised immediately. Oh, the Beatles are so cute. We, Oh, Paul, yeah, I love Paul, you know, and Ringo, he's so cute. Nobody called the Rolling Stones cute. They were punks. Marianne Faithful said that about them. They were the first punks. They were ugly. They were angry. Defiant. De defiant, man. And so that, what it happens, here we go, law of karma, that engenders... Anger, <laughs> repression. And fear. When they were here in 64 for the first time at the Texas State Fair, cop pulled a gun on Keith. Keith was drinking a cocktail of so. Do you know this story? Uh -huh. No. Keith was drinking something. Well, Keith is always drinking something. He was having a refreshment, <laughs> you know, an adult beverage. And the cop told him to pour it out. Keith looked at him like, you must be joking. You're not talking to me, bro. And then the cop said it again, and Keith didn't do it. And the cop took out his gun, and he held it on Keith and said, boy, you know, Texas. Imagine what Keith looked like in Texas in 64, bro. Well, I want to shoot him on sight, <laughs> okay? And he made him pour it out into the toilet and flush it. And then the cop left, and after that, Keith never went on tour unless he was armed. He got the message. Keith was all too aware that his reputation as one of Rock's most notorious renegades was also a liability. I mean, really, the press and, uh, and to a certain extent the public have, have made the Rolling Stones outside of the law, not above it, but outside of it. For you to be a special thing in somebody's head, you know, makes it, impossible for you to really be treated fairly, you know. But 1964 was a long way from 1972. In eight years, the teeny bop mop-topped music fans had graduated into full-fledged adults, politicized by the tumultuous decade of their youth and imbued with liberal and liberated cultural attitudes. What 72 represented for me was that, that we were taking over. Yeah. We being our generation. Now we're in power. It created a much different dynamic in the way we interacted with the world. On the STP tour, Mick Taylor and Keith Richards found a very different America than the one they'd seen just three years earlier. The whole nature of American society, and, and particularly the young people, had changed. I got the feeling that they were more genuinely enthusiastic this time, whereas on the, on the 69 tour, I think your point earlier on about the Rolling Stones symbolizing some kind of rebellious force against the establishment was probably more believable then. America to me seemed much more loose and light-hearted than just this year than it did in uh, really? 69, yeah. And people just seem to be there to have a good time and not to watch uh, their big symbol perform, you know, uh, or they have a riot on stage, you know, it just seems to be, uh, like you say, entertainment. They came to see a show, you know. It actually has to do with Woodstock. Woodstock was the event that crossed the counterculture and the music into coverage by straight 
television. Cabot had Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young and Joni on. And after. She didn't go, but they were there because this was a cultural event. Newsweek covered Woodstock. The Stones were emerged from having been the outlaw counterculture band because when they played 69 that was the meeting of the tribes you you know guys you had to go see the stones man you see i've never i've never really believed that rock music has had any real redeeming cultural significance at all it's only because it's young people's music and it provides a sense of community i suppose amongst young people you know rock theaters concerts where they can meet and uh, and discuss all kinds of things. I mean, young people aren't just interested in rock music. So naturally, political issues and all other kinds of things tend to come up as well. Why, that's why, you know, when we're at a press conference, we're asked, we're asked what our feelings are about the Vietnam War. As anybody who, who would be in that position would be. As is often the case, these changes in culture led to changes in business. Record companies previously owned their artists, and the artists, they did what they were told. In 72, the artists were the power. They weren't obliged to the dictates of these big record companies. They were able to assert their own, their own wishes and their own control. So the Stones had it all their own way at that, in that tour. Nobody told them what to do. Um, music business had not been... Uh, set up previously to accommodate that kind of control. And Gary's exactly right. The artists had taken over, and they dictated the terms because the money they generated was insane. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The Stones had spent the 60s signed to a draconian deal with Decca Records, which left their personal finances in chaos and next to nothing in the bank. So when their contract expired at the start of the decade, they created their own label, Rolling Stones Records, with a little help from legendary music executive and Atlantic Records co-founder, Ahmet Erdogan. Ahmet Erdogan had established Rolling Stones Records. Marshall Chess, the son of Leonard Chess, and his uncle Phil Chess, Chess Records, was running the label. For the first time in their history, which sounds insane, they were in charge of their own fate. They ran their own business, Mick the businessman. And Amit, a brilliant, brilliant businessman and brilliant human being, saw it as a way to cross them over, to cross the stones over from being the outlaw band, which is what they still were, being the hippie band, be, into another level of popular acclaim. For Ahmed Erdogan, the Stones and their songs were never just going to be a flavor of the week. Even then, in 1972, he recognized them for what they were, timeless. This is all still blues music. And blues music ain't show business. It's bigger than show business. It's better than show business. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it's more soulful than show business. Then they emerged from having been the outlaw counterculture band. Now, even though the audiences were still young, they were now accepted in the mainstream. It was the highest grossing tour in the history of rock and roll to that point. And that was not an accident. I mean, the success of the tour was, I guess it was the most successful rock and roll tour was of, of all time. <laughs> you know, don't you think so? I think so. Yeah. I've never gotten as many requests for tickets all over the country. I mean, for every one of those concerts, we had people calling us. I mean, people I hadn't heard from in 10 years or 12 years called me up with distressed, you know, voices saying, I must have two tickets. I mean, so, you know, it's, I mean, I think that I could have sold out each concert myself, you know. Just the people <laughs> I knew. Just with the people I knew, exactly. But uh, there's never been a concert tour that had held that kind of general interest. General interest? Mainstream? Those are dangerous words in rock and roll. Well, the Stones about to become, God forbid, respectable? Not as far as Mick Jagger was concerned. But I mean, I think it's very difficult to make the Rolling Stones respectable. But I don't think that the Rolling Stones will be ever made respectable by that, by that kind of thing. Bassist Bill Wyman agreed. Yeah, society kind of accepted us Finally, Stones on that tour. Halfway through that tour, we found that society was very interested in us. You find that strange? I couldn't care less. I'm not very interested in society, but society like our music. Good luck to them. Well, I don't know if they like the music. Or not. I'm not playing music for society. No, right. <laughs> and so did Mick Taylor. I think, I, think, I think to say that it's been accepted is much better than to say that it's been made respectable. I, I just think it's touched more people. It certainly touched a lot of people. Ticket demand was unprecedented. In Chicago, 
34,000 seats sold out in just five and a half hours. Remember, this was back in a pre-internet time, and it was a lot tougher than just refreshing the page. In Chicago, there were 120,000 requests for 12,000 seats. In other words, only one in 10 Stones fans got satisfaction. Given the lack of supply, capitalism took over, giving way to the relatively new phenomenon known as scalping. A ticket retailing for $650 would go for upwards of $50 or even $100 on the street, or trade for tickets to Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, and The Dead combined. You couldn't get a ticket, you know. Everything sold out instantaneously. There wasn't anybody to want to see him who cared about music. You know, selling out a tour like that on the first day that tickets go on sale, unheard of. Unheard of. Typically, you would sweat it out to the very last day to sell as many tickets as you could in hopes of going into the black. They hadn't been here for three years. So now we've gone through a pandemic where musicians have not worked and, you know, but it was different then. I mean, it sounds so crazy. Time changes over time, if that makes sense to you. Three years was a lot longer period of time back then. It was almost like a semi-era where people who hadn't been into the Stones before, Sticky Fingers changed a lot of minds, okay? Look at the music that's on Sticky Fingers, right? And so the energy generated by that album and not being able to see them. It meant more. You couldn't see them on the internet. There was no video. Couldn't go to the movie. You had to be there. And that was a big deal. Mick Taylor considered the confluence of forces that brought the fans out in droves. So it's not, they're not there just for the music. They can listen to the music in their own homes. You know, they're, they're there for the spectacle and, and for the, the, our physical presence and the charisma, you know. I mean, they, they, they read whatever they like into it, but I mean, essentially we're only there to play music, but it becomes much more than that. Life comes from the whole group, you know, really, actually being there, physically playing. The excitement may have built in the three years since the band toured America, but it also meant they were three years older. By 1972, the Stones had been rolling for a decade, which equals roughly a millennium when converted to rock and roll years. New boy Mick Taylor may have been 23, but for Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, the sun was setting on their 20s. This was the era when people wore buttons that bore the slogan, don't trust anyone over 30. Now the Stones, those heroes of hell-raising and youthful rebellion, were approaching this all-important generational demarcation. Would they still be able to connect with a new legion of young fans they'd acquired with sticky fingers? Could the Stones still rock at age 30? There may have been an age difference, but the energy and he was a very youthful 30, <laughs> very energetic fashion wise. I mean, he was right on point fashion wise. He never aged at that time. He hadn't aged. He still probably hasn't aged. I mean, he's 75 and, and still. I agree with Gary. There was no age gap. Any, anybody in that audience was just freaking out and dancing. And, you know, they just were having a time of their life. Even Keith marveled at the Stones' ability to transcend shifts in the youth movement. The thing that's happened, which surprises me, is that we seem to have managed to keep the interest of the original kids from the earlier 60s, you know, and also attract a fair number of younger ones that were probably only eight or nine when we 
It was the event of the summer in popular culture. And, and also in a very positive way. There wasn't any negativity around this at all. It was all positive. And Altamont was all negative. All negative. They left America in 69 as the villains. They uh, killed somebody. They're evil and dark. Yeah, so this was a positive. This was, you know, you could have a rock and roll tour and excite the country and come away with it as a big success. If Mick Jagger was feeling the strain of this mammoth undertaking, he refused to let it show. It was like that. I mean, the, the 72 tour was even bigger than 69. I didn't think it could get any bigger than that. More interest, yes. More pressure, no. Where do you reckon the interest comes from? I don't know. <laughs> I think a lot of the interest in this could have been stimulated by the fact that the 1969 tour was so disastrous at the end. And lots of people expected us to probably fail on this one. But I was a bit worried about it, you know, because of what had happened before. But I, I think the security arrangements and the organization was so bad on the 69 tour. 69 tour was dark, like criminal rent-a-cars that were abandoned and everybody ripped off and chaos and anarchy in an amateur manner and arrogant. It resulted in Altamont, you know, and Bill Graham called it the Pearl Harbor Rock. There was no accident. The karma of the 69 tour was truly dark, not so in 72. It was a joyous occasion for many people on multiple levels. From the earliest planning stages, the STP tour aimed to correct the mistakes of their previous trek. As Mick Jagger says, the difference was night and day. on the fact that in 69 there was no transportation, no logistics properly arranged, there was no proper accommodation. And the band was genuinely interested in doing another tour and doing a good one, you know, and like, and like going to like picking out all these towns because like we had never been there since X and what the interest from the public is just uh, very gratifying. And Bill Wyman agreed. This was different. It was different because it was so incredibly well organized, which tours never are. Well, your tours you always get <laughs> you always get balls up. Always. According to Mick Taylor, the size was the crucial difference. We played at the same kind of places, really, to the same kind of audience. The only real difference was the uh, scale of the two. Was it, was it much more sane? Was it... No, was rock and roll <laughs> tours are never sane. You know that, you've been on enough of them. Thus, the metaphorical stage was set for 1972's STP tour. That stands for the Stones Touring Party, but the fact that SDP is also the street name for a psychedelic amphetamine is probably not complete coincidence. The tour had multiple objectives. On the surface, it was designed to promote the Stones' new album, Exile on Main Street, but it would also provide the Stones with a chance to mend fences after the deadly disaster at Altamont. And finally, there was the slightly less altruistic goal, make a lot of money. SDP marks the first tour of the modern rock era, planned for maximum efficiency. The 48-date run would be staged on a scale previously unseen in popular music, with the largest entourage in rock history up to that point. They had their own security team, their own film crew, their own doctor, and a press corps that rivaled most political campaigns. When all the laminates were printed up for the more than 40-person organization, it was clear that this wasn't just a tour, but a grand event, an all-encompassing hedonistic binge across the country. This is the next 
step up for the business of rock and roll on tour. They hadn't been there for three years, man. So when you have that much time, that led to a lot of the planning. The headquarters of the tour were the Beverly Rodeo Hotel. Beverly Hills was not then what it has become. The bar at the Re Beverly Rodeo was all hookers. <laughs> I, I'm not judging, you know, whatever. But it was kind of funky. It was a funky little hotel. And they were in this room or a suite of rooms, and it was Alan Dunn and Joe Bergman and Peter Rudge, and they were doing everything. They were on four phones, and they were eating breakfast room service and talking and doing everything. To mount a tour on this scale, you needed someone with an unparalleled logistical mind, fueled by a mix of ambition and insanity. As Keith Richards notes, such figures were in short supply. If you're going to do a big tour, you have to have it planned down to the last detail, you know. Peter, right? Yeah, I mean, somebody that's done it and is good at it and, and takes pride in, in doing it properly and gets really screwed up if it doesn't go right. You know? I mean, it's got to be like that. There's got to be somebody who's as interested in his end of it as the musicians are in there. You know? Which, um, it's hard to find people like that, you know. People like Raj are very rare, you know. Peter Rudge, who was the manager of this tour, was probably the most intense guy that I've ever worked with. Went to Cambridge, brilliant human being, you know, mad, driven, you know, no sleep. He could do it. He could do it. His focus and determination to get things done his way <laughs> was unmatched and unrivaled. And thanks to him, it, did th yeah. it kept going. Yeah. But it, he just was a bull in a china shop. Yes. He just bowled over anything in his way. Oh, my God. And he could talk fast. He could and talk. And he would sweat, and his hair was, he had long <laughs> hair that would stick to his head because he was always, always sweating. And uh, just in a frenzy, he'd wake up in the morning, he'd come down from the hotel, he was already in a frenzy. And this is like 8 o'clock in the morning, and Peter's already into, you know, a, a 9 on a 10 scale of frenziness. So, and that was the level that he operated on constantly. And, but, I, you know, I think that largely this thing got done because Peter was that intense. But Rudge's intensity quickly won over Bill Wyman and the rest of the band. I, I found that Pete Rudge was incredible because not only did he get the whole thing together before he even went, set it up well, he got the right people, and he arranged every, every detail right down to the tiniest little things that were always left to somebody else and never always got done all the time, you know. He has planned this tour security-wise. Like, he's got measurements on drain pipes that lead to the... What if they come through the drain pipe? I was in meetings with them, and they, like, the, the officials are looking at each other. There's a drain pipe there? Like, we don't even... Where he got the map, we have no clue. He was obsessed with security and Jagger's personal safety. That's what it was really all about, okay? And the safety of the concert. Safety was the paramount concern. For British bands, the United States was always a hazardous gauntlet to run. Violence was simply part of the cultural psyche, as American as apple pie. Weeks before the tour was due to kick off, Alabama's segregationist governor-turned-presidential candidate George Wallace was gunned down in a suburban shopping center outside Washington, D.C. I'm hard-pressed to think of a sentence that better sums up America in 1972. For Charlie Watts, the country had a fearsome edge. Does America scare me? America scares the shit out of me in the sense that 
if anyone wants to do anything, man, they're going to try. You know, they, they either go to prison or they get beaten mm -hmm. up or they get off it. Or... Keith Richards hoped that the advanced planning would prevent deadly disasters, but there's only so much that could be done. I found that things like that only happen when there isn't adequate security. That's, that's when people feel that extra free years, you know, and feel that they can get away with that kind of thing. Like, awesome. It's a classic example of no security, you know, then, then they went crazy. These weren't abstract threats. The Hells Angels felt that the Stones had left them high and dry following the murder at Altamont, thereby sullying the good name of their motorcycle club in the pages of every American news outlet. Now they wanted revenge. Rumors spread throughout the underground that the Hells Angels planned to kidnap Mick Jagger and hold him for ransom. Or worse, some said there was a bounty on his head. It swirled around the entire tour. Is somebody going to try to assassinate Mick Jagger? Not some random, we're living in a time of random assassinations everywhere. The angels blamed Jagger for taking the hit for what they had done for $500 worth of beer. Every precaution was taken. Private planes, limos, and higher stages to prevent audience invasions. The band were assigned a pair of linebacker-sized bodyguards, lovingly known as Stan the Man Moore and Big Leroy Leonard. They followed Mick and Keith everywhere, including, some say, into their hotel suites at night. The band's entire floor would be blocked off to outsiders, but several members of the entourage were prepared to take the law into their own hands. Rolling Stone's records chief Marshall Chess carried loaded 38 caliber handgun. But as Bill Wyman says, when you're playing in front of 10,000 people, there's only so much you can do to defend yourself. I mean, you're always open to being shot on stage. You're always, you think about you're always aware of that. I mean, you're so wide open. You don't think about it, but anybody with any sense at all is going to think there's a possibility at some time or other that some crank's going to... I mean, we've been shot at with air gun before. On stage, yeah, and he, Charlie got a pellet in his cheek. Ian Stewart an original Rolling Stone turned roadie by 1972, echoed the sentiment. The way I think about it is that if anybody was going to do him, they'd do him with a rifle from the back of the hall or something like that. If anybody really set out to bloody kill him, they'd kill him. For Mick, every night on stage was two hours in the crosshairs. The show would go on, though the cost couldn't have been any higher. In truth, he didn't have a choice. It was the only way he could keep on being Mick Jagger. I mean, either I stopped touring or, or I didn't, you know. I mean, it was as simple as that. And a few people were like, say, don't go, you know, but friends of mine, you know, I said, you really got to be more careful and you can't go. And I said, well, it's more or less what I do, so I've got to do it. You know, either I could do it or I don't do it. If I don't do it, what am I going to do? You know, there was a few places that it did get scary. And there was a lot of guns confiscated and stuff like that, you know. But that's why I wasn't scared, you know, I was scared shitless. A hit on Mick wasn't the Stones' only problem as they crossed the flaming continent. Their equipment van is bombed in Montreal, they're jailed in Rhode Island, their opening night in Vancouver is derailed by rioters, and they nearly burned down the Playboy Mansion in Chicago. Plus, there's trouble in the band's inner circle. Keith's descent into heroin addiction threatens his bond with Mick and his life. 
Drug dealing scammers invade their ranks, and the Stones cope with the fact that they're nearly broke. But it's too late to stop now. So hop on, there's a show to do. Stone's Touring Party is written and hosted by Jordan Runtalk, co-executive produced by Noel Brown and Jordan Runtalk, edited and sound designed by Noel Brown and Michael Alder June. Original music composed and performed by Michael Alder June and Noel Brown, with additional instruments performed by Chris Suarez, Nick Johns Cooper, and Josh Thane. Vintage Rolling Stones audio, courtesy of the Robert Greenfield Archive at the Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections in Northwestern University Libraries. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Looking for a better solution to keep your firearms in high-performance condition? Visit RiptideArmory.com for the most advanced proprietary gun cleaning formula on the market. Right now, get up to $40 off any cleaning kit for a limited time on RiptideArmory.com and take advantage of this amazing deal today. Riptide's two-step cleaning kit offers state-of-the-art technology and guaranteed satisfaction. Riptide Armory is a veteran-founded business, and you can trust that all chemicals are American-made and quality-tested. Shop RiptideArmory.com. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U-Fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's Unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk Extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.